Well, good morning, everyone. Great to see you all. A few announcements as we get started. We do have communion today, as you can see, so if you're a born-again Christian, please avail yourself of that. It is uh, open to all. So at the end of the service, I'll just invite everyone up forward to take of the cup and the bread, and then we'll uh, partake together. Um, roster signups. There, are, there is a roster out front, so if you uh, be seeking the Lord, if you should be serving in a various capacity, and uh, there's lots of opportunities in all areas, and thank you to all who do help out. I think uh, nearly, I mean, there's a, a great percentage of people that help out practically, and so I'm very grateful for that. And we all are blessed by your ministry, so look into that. Uh, this Saturday, we have a movie. So The Jesus Revolution, we're going to show that here. It's a free screening, so please come out and check that out. 7 p.m. Saturday. Uh, it goes a bit into Pastor Greg Laurie and his background and the Jesus People movement in the States back in the 60s. So before my time, but a good movie. <laughs> Finally, um, get those deposits in for church camp. It's coming up in April. And I can think of no better use for annual leave than going to hang out with your brothers and sisters in Christ. So please consider that. Um, it should be an awesome time. So there are signups and, and more information about that out in front. All right, well, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for your wisdom and for the strength you give us to embrace a new day. Thank you for the hope that we have in our Savior, Jesus Christ, and for the love that you have shown us continually. And we ask that you would fill us with your spirit. You would help us to understand what we're reading today. And uh, just thank you that you have much to say to us. And everything you say is good and true and trustworthy. And I pray that we'd put it into practice in our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. Ecclesiastes 12 is where we'll be. We're going to talk about remembering today. And to remember, that's to call to mind, to keep in mind, and to take according action. In the Bible, that's, um, when you say remember, it's more than just a mental exercise of like, oh yeah, that's true. But actually, to be living your life in light of that truth. You guys have probably seen the animated classic, The Lion King, with the... Uh, follows the life of Simba, who's this young prince. His father, the alpha lion, um, Mufasa, was tragically killed, and he runs away from the pack. He leaves a pride. He makes friends with a meerkat and a warthog, and he embraces this lifestyle of carefree living, you know, not worrying about anything, very hedonistic. He's trying to avoid his painful past while his pride is suffering neglect. And there's this key moment in the film where Simba has a vision of his father who said, remember who you are, that he needed to remember who his father was, that he was the son, he was the rightful heir to the king, and remembering meant he needed to fight for his place, to take on that mantle of leadership. And so remembering wasn't like, oh yeah, my dad's name is, but it involved an action that he needed to take his place in the circle of life, right? So um, this is, this is, it's a good illustration of what the Bible means when we remember, remember who our father is, remember who our savior is. And today we're going to remember our creator. And as the book of Ecclesiastes comes to a close, 
it's good for us to sum up some of the main points that the preacher Solomon has touched on concerning life under the sun. And there was no man more wise or wealthy than Solomon who had not only the money and the means, but the brains to pursue everything possible. Everything was accessible to him under the sun to try to pursue satisfaction in this life. And he remained empty. I mean, he spared no expense in acquiring things and tackling building projects. He's multiplying gold and silver. He's pursuing uh, wine and music and he's hiring musicians. Um, he acquired servants, horses, 700 wives, 300 concubines, but he still was empty after all these things that he had all this experience. He's like, life is meaningless. Life is empty. And so he can say that on good authority. He's experienced much more than us. And he, he came to the conclusion that the best thing a person could do was to enjoy whatever gifts God gave them all the days of their vain life under the sun to make the most of the life that we have now. And he discovered that the vanity of life, the frailty of life, the brevity of life, it's a gift of God that guides us to make the most of the time we have. And he, but he also realized that life under the sun is not all there is, that we will face judgment by a holy God, that we will stand before him and give an answer for our life. Um, so we're going to get into that now. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 1. Remember now your creator in the days of your youth, before the difficult days come, and the years draw near when you say, I have no pleasure in them. When the, while the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are not darkened, and the clouds do not return after the rain in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men bow down when the grinders cease because they are few and those that look through the windows grow dim when the doors are shut in the streets and the sound of grinding is low when one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of music are brought low also they are afraid of height and of terrors in the way when the almond tree blossoms the grasshopper is a burden and desire fails for man goes to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. So he says, remember your creator now. So remembering is not just thinking, but it results in meaningful action. We see this in Genesis eight, where God remembered Noah and he caused a wind to blow and to cause the earth to dry after the great flood. When God saw the rainbow in the cloud, he remembered the covenant he made not to destroy mankind or the world with a flood again. So that was involved with salvation. When the children of Israel, they groaned in bondage. It said God remembered them and he sent Moses to deliver them. So when he remembered the promises he made, he took action to save, to deliver, to help. Solomon said, Remember now your creator in the days of your youth, in your early days, in your choice years, while you still have the chance, choose to remember God. Now remember your creator, the one who made you honor and obey him. The one who gives you an eternal home. Now is the time. If you think it's going to be easier or better to turn to God later in life, you are mistaken. There's no better time to turn to God than right now. And remember God who created you because life is going to get harder. It's not going to get easier. And Solomon doesn't hold back from the truth here. He, he tells us how it is. 
Regardless of your age, there are things you can do now easily that you don't even think about that someday you will not be able to do. And those will continue to increase. Isn't it right that we should spend our best years remembering God who created us? I mean, right now is the time that we have. For all of us, there are difficult days ahead. It's not saying that in old age, we can't be useful. I think of Barzillai, the Gileadite. He showed up when David was king. Remember David's fleeing from Jerusalem because his son Absalom has usurped the throne. He's trying to prevent bloodshed in Jerusalem. And so he flees. And Barzillai, he's 80 years old. He comes to David without being asked. He was a wealthy man and he provided all these provisions for the trip. And he was so generous. Um, I love that he's, he's wasn't asked. He wasn't required, but he's like, you're my king. He provided for him. And then after Absalom was defeated and his army um, scattered, David offered him a place at his table. He's like, Barzillai, you can eat at my table every day. And I love his humble epic answer in 2 Samuel 19:35. He says, I, I am today 80 years old. Can I discern between the good and bad? Can your servant taste what I eat or what I drink? Can I hear any longer the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be a further burden to my Lord, the King? And he's like, I have someone else that could take my place, but it, it would not be worth it for me to enjoy your hospitality because I can't even hear the singing. Like I can't even taste the food. I can't really enjoy it fully. So how about you? You give your gifts to someone else. Solomon's observation, they echo this, that he had experienced a physical decline and physical abilities that his pleasure in life began to wane as his life drew to an end. And so Solomon uses these examples from weather and from life in a town to illustrate physical decline that people experience if they live long enough. So it says the light of the sun, it starts, um, you know, it rises in the morning, but it sets at night. There's a beginning of our lives and an end of our life. We emerge from the womb into light and we head to the darkness of the grave. You weather a storm. It says when the rain, the, the, the storm clouds don't return after the rain. Well, we can go through storms in this life, can't we? And we weather the storm, but guess what? There's clouds on the horizon. You may, you may beat that physical condition. You may beat that illness, but there will be another storm brewing and you can count on that. That life is cyclical. You will deal with trials and difficulties that chronic conditions. They lead to new problems. He says the keepers of the house start trembling. Your body is supported by your legs that carries your frame. And there used to be a day when it didn't matter if you were jumping or running or standing, you could support your weight. But at a point you begin to tremble. You don't have the strength you once did this strong men bowing down. It speaks of a body that's bent shoulders and a back that's no longer able to support a heavy weight. And so um, he's like, remember God now in your youth. And in a po poetic sense, I appreciate, but not in reality when the grinders cease because they are few, you know what your grinders are your teeth, your teeth are your grinders. When they're few, they're not very good to meet their function. When there's no tooth on the opposite side of a tooth, it is hard to chew. And so the grinders cease because they are few. Our eyes are the windows. We peer out into our surroundings and someday they're going to go dim. We won't be able to see as clearly as we did. Doors of opportunity will close. Our ability to work productively will be lessened. 
These are the facts of life under the sun. He speaks of one who rises up at the sound of the bird. You know, in our, in our younger days, we could sleep through everything. I remember taking my son to a bowling alley when he was an infant and he would just sleep through the pins, just crashing, banging, banging. He's just like sleeping, just serene. But as you get older, you get to be a light sleeper. Is there anyone here who has become a light sleeper in their old age? Even though the sound of music has gone dim, you don't hear as well as you used to, but now you wake up easier and it's harder to go back to sleep. And it says that they're afraid of height and terrors in the way people get more cautious about avoiding heights because falls can be more severe and debilitating. A day comes when it's unsafe for you to be on a ladder. It is unsafe for you to be stringing those Christmas lights on your second story roof. That is for someone else to do, right? You're like that. I do. I, that's where I should not be is on a roof. So Someday, hopefully it won't be a fall that leads you to that conclusion. We're like me and ladders. We don't play anymore. We don't work well together and fears, terrors in the way. Like wherever you look, there is danger and you begin to, your fears begin to increase rather than decrease. There's more things you're concerned about now than you used to be because you're aware of the danger they pose. And then he mentions the almond tree blossoming. I have a great picture for that a picture of an almond tree in Israel. Let's see if it, well, there it is white, the hair turning white in old age. When the almond tree blossoms, he talks about people who were once in spry, like a grasshopper, just leaping around, able to move, but now they're dragging themselves around. Now, if you see a grasshopper dragging itself around, you're like, Oh, that's not right. Something's not right about this grasshopper. It's looking like it's the end of its days. And that's us. We start to lose our mobility, our ability to jump and leap. It's just not there. It says their desire fails. The Hebrew word is caperberry. Soon after it blossoms, the fruit, it scatters seed. The plant shortly thereafter withers. It's a picture of decline of sexual desire and ability. So it's like the desire is gone. The ability to follow through is just not there. And all these point to the reality of verse five for man goes to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. There will be a day when we'll be unable to do what we can do. Now we will go to our graves. Our passing will be mourned. And in time, those who mourn, they will be mourned as well when they die. So This paints a bleak picture from a humanistic perspective, does it not? Not a lot of hope here, but Jesus coming to earth, the revelation of the gospel, it transforms our outlook because he gives the promise of eternal life that is sure that we can count on. And in his wisdom, God has sought, he has chosen to indwell us as human beings. He's like, you are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. So he's dwelling within us. We have fellowship with God by his grace and the life of Christ is manifested in us as he renews us day by day, as he strengthens us. We're pained physically, but rejoicing in Jesus. We need God's help, but we're grateful for what he strengthens us to do. Even though it's not what we could do before we're afflicted, but we know we are drawing ever closer to a glorious future where all sickness and pain and sorrow will be banished forever. And we can rejoice even if our bodies are falling apart. Have you ever thought that? I am literally coming apart at the seams in a physical or an emotional level. 
But Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians 5.1. He says, for we know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. One day known on a day known to God, he will evict us from this tent, this temporary dwelling place, which we call our bodies. And we will be given a new body that's likened to Christ's resurrected body because death is not the end of our lives. If you know, you have a trip coming, you pack your bags in anticipation. You're joyful of this, this you're like, let's go. There's a spring in your step. Or are we kind of like the squatter that has barricaded himself in the room and saying, you'll have to kill me. I'm not leaving this place. When it comes to our eternal promotion, do we rejoice in the hope that we have in Jesus, that we're going to be with him in a perfect body, in a perfect place where righteousness dwells that because of Jesus, we are comforted. We have peace with God. We have rest right now. And our future is even greater that death is not the end of our lives. It's like the turning of the page from the book's preface to the beginning of the real story. And this is a glorious truth that a terminal illness, we can go, that's a death sentence, or we can say that's a promotion to glory because that's the reality of those who are in Christ. This is what we have to look forward to. And it's glorious. Ecclesiastes 12 verse six. Remember your creator before the silver cord is loosed or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the well. Then the dust will return to earth as it was. And the spirit will return to God who gave it vanity of vanities says the preacher. All is vanity. Remember your creator repeated again. Another list of everyday items that can allude to parts of our bodies that break down and fail. If a cable snaps, the load falls. If a ceramic bowl breaks or a pitcher shatters, you won't be able to fulfill its function. It's like if you went to the well and there's a wheel to wind up the bucket, the wheel breaks off. You're like, oh, well, I can't get water that way. Or the, the pitcher shatters. You can't get water. Um, and I think if it were not for God, if it were not for some relatively recent advances in medicine and surgery, a lot of us would not be here today. A lot of us wouldn't because God has been gracious to provide that medicine. But there's a time where even the best medical treatment will fail. It's like when that spinal cord is severed, which is silver in color, when that skull is crushed, when one suffers catastrophic heart failure, the damage done can be beyond a surgeon's ability to repair. And no one plans for this to happen. You know, your favorite dish that's fallen and is broken. That pitcher that's been handed down for generations that just slipped out of your grasp and hit the ground. You didn't plan for that to happen. No one plans for these things that do happen. But right now, while you're conscious, while you can think clearly, while your heart is still beating, while your nervous system works, now is the time to remember your creator. The human body is resilient, but it also is very frail. I had a cousin who's 41 years old, perfect health. He, he died suddenly after treading on a bee, just went on a walk and uh, didn't know that he was allergic to bees. He, he passed out. He never regained consciousness. 
Before he knew it, life was over. McGee wrote in his commentary through the Bible, life is empty if you're just living for the here and now. One day you will find all you have in your hand is a fistful of ashes and you will have eternity ahead of you. So all this life, it's meaningless and empty without Christ, without God, without remembering our creator who saves us from death, who gives us that hope of eternal life. Now, everyone in this room has experienced loss or you will experience loss. It's simply a matter of time because of life under the sun. We live in a world that's cursed with sin and death. But I think that what the missionary Jim Elliott preached, he said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He could not keep his life. So he chose to give his life. And we think that he gave his life. Sometimes we can think this, that he gave his life in Ecuador to reach this unreached group of people. But he really gave his life long before that, when he chose to lay aside an acting career, when he chose to not pursue any professional, um, you know, corporate executive position, he chose to give his life in obedience to the Lord, to proclaim his word to people who'd never heard it before. That's what God called him to. Paul, the apostle, he was willing to give up honor and respect by fellow Jews to proclaim Jesus to the Gentiles. So he wasn't boasting himself as academic excellence or commanding large fees. He's working, build, making tents so that he can give the gospel free of charge. They found Jesus of greater value than anything they owned or anything they wanted because in him, they had everything they needed. And he said, I will give anything, Paul said, for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus. And he wanted to be righteous by faith. And he said this in Philippians 3, 10 and 11, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. You can't keep your life, but those who give themselves to Jesus in faith, they have eternal life. He is our life. So what a joy we have giving our lives to Jesus and all who place their faith in Christ. We know we will go to him when our bodies give out on this earth, when we return to dust and by his resurrection, Jesus proved his power over the grave by his ascension. He showed he is the only way to heaven in giving us the Holy spirit as a down payment. We know we belong with him that that is our home where he is. We belong there. Do you, do you appreciate how wonderful it is to belong somewhere and to know that I belong in heaven where Jesus is because he's purchased me because he has redeemed me. That's where I belong. That's where I fit. And that's amazing that we have that in our savior. We, we deserve hell. We deserve death. But having been born again by faith, we belong with Jesus. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, we are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. He had this confidence that gave him boldness in remembering his creator. So God, he has, he has redemptive purposes in the vanity of life on earth. And it's amazing that while our lives are short compared to a vapor, like grass that flourishes one day and withers the next, a shadow that's suddenly gone. God grants us the capacity to make decisions that impact our forever 
where we'll spend eternity and also the rewards that he gives us by his grace. Like there's this short life on earth that really matters. It counts. Solomon's pursuits left him grasping for the wind, even though he was numbered among the most wealthy and influential people who ever have lived. We can be satisfied in this life when Jesus is our life. So that's something to remember. Like if you're not experiencing satisfaction in this life, it's because you're looking for satisfaction from what cannot give you satisfaction. It's in him where we are satisfied, where we find rest for our souls, where we have peace with God because God loves us. He can change us. We're given assurance of our salvation, not by works we have done, but by faith in Jesus who shed his own blood to atone for our sins, to purchase us. Ecclesiastes 12 verse nine. And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find acceptable words and what was written was upright words of truth. The preacher in Ecclesiastes, also a king in Solomon's case, he spoke with authority as one given wisdom by God. And his aim was to teach the people that they might be knowledgeable and live wisely. He wasn't just trying to give them facts, but giving them these proverbs so they could look at the truth and say, is my life aligned with that truth? Am I living as someone that believes that's true? He wanted them to consider their manner of life, to get them thinking and impart that truth to their own experience. His words weren't to uh, entertain them, but this is the truth. We're reading God's word. He's given us all these 66 books for our consumption. The wisdom of God is not just in a far off place where only he knows about it or a few hand, a handful of people have understanding, but the word we hold in our hands and hide in our hearts, it's supposed to impact our lives. Our lifestyle is to be shaped by the things we know to be true in God's word. People who do not know God, sometimes they accuse him of cruelty because they don't realize he is always loving. And they may complain how bitter his judgments seem because they've never tasted of his grace. Those who do not know God, why should we accept criticism of God by them? By those who don't even believe in him, we should give no no, no time for that whatsoever. If they have rejected him, we who know him, God's given us. It's not like I'm the authority. His word is the authority. So we have in the book of Ecclesiastes and the Bible, the upright words of truth, and they present a perfect revelation of God as he is. The Bible's not like a sprawling house that began as a shed. You know, it began as a shed and a little added on here and there. And it becomes this kind of mess. That's not at all what the Bible is. It's not like a sagging roof. You, you need a few joists to, to shore it up and, oh, we didn't think of this and we'd like to add that. No, it's not at all how the Bible was put together. A rock solid immovable foundation was laid down in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created it. This is our creator. He's the one that we look to. John 1 verses 1 through 3, it says of Christ, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him, nothing was made that was made. So we have now Jesus revealed to be our creator, 
the one who has made all things, the one who was before all things. He's the one to whom we look, our savior, our redeemer. Because the Bible is upright, we can see how bent we are. By the law is the knowledge of sin. God's revealed that we're all sinners, so we might run to him who's provided a savior, that we might believe on him and follow him in obedience. We can have peace with God. You can have peace with God. And knowing life under the sun is meaningless and empty, it ought to direct us, well, either despair or it directs us to seek to please God, to seek to to know and to follow and trust the God who created us, who's redeemed us and who guides us into all truth. Verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads and the words of scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. And further, my son be admonished by these of making many books. There is no end and much study is wearisome to the flesh. Goads and nails have some similarities. They're both pointed objects used to perform work. An ox goad was a long stick that had pointed end on it. It may have a piece of iron on the end, but it just could be pointed. And it would be the farmer jabbing the ox when it was time to move forward. Like, like, okay, get up, let's move. And, uh, oh, you'd feel it and move forward. And you also use the, the goad because you're usually behind a plow or a cart. If you were using a plow, you could clean the mud or the roots off of the plowshare, the cutting edge that was going through the, the soil, and that would make the ox's job easier. They'd be able to do their job more efficiently and effectively. So the words of the wise are like goads. They direct us, they prompt us to wise action. When Jesus appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus, Jesus told him, it is hard to kick against the pricks or to kick against the goads. Saul had spent his whole life studying the Torah, and many times his conscience had been pricked again and again, driving him to Christ, driving him to the savior, but he kicked against it. He said, I'm not going that direction. I'm not going that direction. And it wasn't until Jesus arrested him on the road where he struck blind that he was humbled. He was broken. And he realized that my fight against God and his word is futile. And so physical blindness brought him to a place of humble submission and he started listening to God. He started obeying God. And he said, Lord, what will you have me to do? Total change from what he was saying before when he had those papers that justified him arresting believers. Solomon said the words of the scholars are literally masters of assemblies. They're like well-driven nails. Now nails, they have a pointed end. You drive them into pieces of wood or material to fasten them securely together. If you ever tried driving nails, it's likely you have been guilty of driving some very poor, poorly driven nails. You know, the one that you didn't quite set and you hit it and it's like, whoa, where'd that go? <laughs> or you, you hit your hand or you missed the nail completely and just dented the wood. And you're like, that's finished work. And oh, well, that's a problem. <clears throat> some, some hit a knot. They uh, bent in half and you just hammered it down anyway. You say, I'm just gonna add another one. Right? You didn't even bother pulling it out. So not poorly driven nails, well-driven nails, nails that are sunk perfectly, properly. And they're given by one shepherd. These are not Solomon's nails. He didn't design them. He didn't come up with them. It was the good shepherd David spoke about in Psalm 23. 
the good shepherd Jesus says he is in John 10, 11. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Those who hear the words of Jesus and do them, he compared them to a person who builds their life on bedrock, on something solid, where you can build on a strong foundation because Jesus alone has the words of life. So of God's word, Solomon said, be admonished by these. That's not a word we use all the time. I don't know if admonished is in your vocabulary, but it means to be advised, to be warned, to be instructed. So it's like the words of the wise, the words of God, they are sharp. They are penetrating. They will do good work. They will guide and direct us. They will prompt us in a direction of wisdom. It is the ultimate authority and truth. And for making of books, there is no end. The Bible is not like other books. The book market is saturated with self-help books promising a better life, wellness, success, wealth, good habits, unlocking your greatness by doing, following this pattern. And if one of these is a bestseller, guess what? They have a new edition that comes out of making books. There is no end. So it's like, you're never done with that work. And it's very wearisome. It's very tiring. It's much, very burdensome because they cannot save you from your problems. They cannot save you from yourself, no matter how hard you try. And most would rather put their trust in self rather than surrendering their lives to God in faith and obedience. Education alone, it's not going to save the world's ills. This cannot deliver people from the idol of pride and selfishness, greed and hatred. Paul spoke about people who are ever learning, but never able to come to the truth since they were unwilling to submit themselves to Christ, who is the truth. Ecclesiastes 12 verse 13. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is man's all for God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now Solomon's conclusion is very different than his premise. If you were to turn back to the beginning of the book in Ecclesiastes one, two, and three, he says, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? He's like, life is empty. Life is meaningless. Life is pointless. What is the point of this life? That's how he starts. And at the end though, he has a conclusion and it's awesome. Because if we are to limit our view of life um, under the sun without consideration of God, our mortality, our eternity, yes, life is meaningless. It is empty. But his accomplishments, his experiences that left him so empty, it led him to this crystallized summary of how we should live to fear God and to keep his commandments. Remembering that God is our eternal judge before whom we will be required to give an account who's been revealed to be Jesus. This should guide us today. So when he says, remember now your creator in the days of your youth, remember your savior. Now, remember that he died for you. Remember that he has risen from the dead. Remember that he intercedes on your behalf and bids us to boldly come into his throne room of grace to find mercy and grace in time of need. Remember him. Let him guide your life. Let him direct and sustain you. Be admonished by his words. Be corrected, instructed, and 
uh, pointed in the godly direction. Paul told the philosophers in Athens in Acts 17, verse 30, he says, truly these times of ignorance, God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has a given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So our lives are not going to be judged by Solomon, by self-help authors, but by Jesus who gave us his word and his resurrection. It identifies him as the judge of all the earth. The one that we answer to God will bring every work into judgment, every thought that we've had, every secret deed, the motives of our hearts. And he's given us an upright standard in his word. And this poses a big problem for us as sinners, right? It exposes us. It shows us like, wow, I have fallen far short of the glory of God. I have erred exceedingly. And we read that the soul that sins will surely die. So it paints us into this corner. Yet there's hope for us as lost condemned sinners through Jesus, because he's made this new and living way to come to God through faith in Christ that we can be born again. It's not a claim of perfection that pleases God, but faith in Christ. So Solomon, his conclusion is that our purpose is to fear God, to keep his commandments. Fear in a biblical sense is similar to remember. It's to keep in mind, but it's more specific. It's the awe or, and reverence of God and his commands that arise from an accurate view of God and the love of him. This leads us to hate sin and everything that offends him, that that is distasteful to us. It's disgusting because we live to please him who redeemed us and it guides us to follow him in obedience. Jesus said, the one who loves me will obey me in John 14, one, he commanded, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. He has, he is God in human flesh. And when he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said to love the Lord, your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. And the second was to love your neighbor as yourself. He goes on to say, love one another as I have loved you. And so love, not the letter of the law is to guide and direct us. And so it's fitting that a passage that begins with remember now your creator would be calling to mind what Jesus said when he said, remember me. So turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 22, starting at verse 19. And this is what he commanded his di disciples during the Passover meal. Luke 22 verse 19. It reads, and he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Jesus commanded his disciples to remember something that he was going to do, which is a bit interesting. Usually we, we put that like after something has happened, we remember, but he says, remember me by doing this because his body was going to be broken. His blood was going to be shed. And so the bread it's symbolic of his body broken for us. His, the, the cup symbolic of the blood that would be shed for us, that the atonement would be provided on the cross for lost sinners. Jesus being that perfect sacrifice. And so eating and drinking that didn't cleanse them, 
but it showed they were partakers spiritually in what he was accomplishing. And so that's what we do in remembering today. And remembering for us is just not eating of the bread and drinking of the cup. It's remembering we have a savior who's died for us, who lives in us, who intercedes for us. One who is with us will never leave or forsake us. And one that we're going to, and one who's coming again. And because we can have such boldness in our savior, we delight to remember him. We delight to obey him and his perfect love casts out all fear that we've been forgiven. We've been washed clean. We have, we have been saved by faith in him and let this just cascade upon you with joy and gratitude and thanksgiving. Let's go. Oh, I appreciate that. Let's thank God for that. Let's thank him by a life that honors him, that remembers what he has said and says, you know, Lord, I trust you. I'm going to obey you. I believe that you are true. And so in remembering Jesus, we also proclaim him. It says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. The proclamation of Jesus death is really a proclamation of his love because he demonstrated his love while we were dead in sin. He died for us. He gave his life so we could live and be with him. And so today and every day, it's the day to remember your creator, how he demonstrated his love by dying for your, in your place, his victory over sin and death through his resurrection, and that he has promised to receive us to glory. Could I please ask the worship team to come up? And they will lead us in a song as we are uh, singing. And let's, let's be uh, remembering what Jesus has done. Let's be confessing our sin. Let's be rejoicing in his forgiveness. And while they're playing the song, please come up and take of the cup and bread. And then when the song is over, I will lead us all in a prayer together. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful that you have given us words of wisdom, the words of life that we can have peace with God through Jesus. Thank you for this new and living way that you've made for our sins to be washed clean, that we can be free of guilt and shame. And Lord, if we are allowing that to, to hang on and to, to uh, trouble us, I pray that all that would be washed away by your grace, that faith would, uh, would rule in our hearts, that we would take you at your word, that we would trust you, believe you and follow you, and I pray that our lives would be a proclamation, Lord, that we are remembering you and we would continue remembering you when we go from this place that uh, thank you that you go with us, that we are not alone because you're with us. And I pray that we would bring you honor and praise our great God and savior who came as a man who died on the cross, who rose from the dead and who's given life and liberty to all who believe. So we praise and thank you, Lord. We we're so grateful for your great gift of salvation, this wonderful gift of fellowship, belonging in the church and belonging in heaven. Oh Lord, you're so good. We, we worship and praise you in Jesus name. Amen.